In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Moses climbed to the top of the hill with Aaron and Hur. As long as Moses kept his hands raised up, Israel had the better of the fight. And Jesus teaches a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. My concern is that we don't pray in such a way that there's any chance of us growing weary. We might grow bored. We might grow um, annoyed. We might grow bitter. But very few of us approach prayer as an activity that has any chance of making us weary. Lately in the confessional, uh, I've been encouraging people to add corporeality to their prayer, make something physical connected to their prayer. Pray while you're kneeling, not to inflict pain on your kneecaps or your joints. Um, Make sure it's cushioned. But for the sake of actually just engaging the muscles of your body while you're praying, keeps you alert. And 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 it makes something of a of an of a oblation, some, some kind of sacrifice to offer up. Pray the stations of the cross. Walk, genuflect, be with our Lord. You can do that anywhere at any time. If no one's looking, if you're home alone, if you happen to have the keys of the church and no one else is in the church, then lie down and prostrate in the shape of the cross. Or pray standing up with your arms held out in the shape of a cross. There's a beautiful tradition of pilgrims going to Loch Derg, St. Patrick's Purgatory in the north of Ireland and Donegal, where a very intense uh, few days of prayer and penance are spent barefoot, not eating food, praying in silence. And the, the, the dozens and hundreds of pilgrims who flock to to Lag Derg during the summer months, have this sequence of prayers that they make, kneeling on rocks here, standing in the, in the cold lake water there, just up to their ankles, though. But there's a beautiful spot along the, uh, the left edge of the, the church of Lag Derg where the individual stands with arms outstretched and prays the creed. It's among the more unusual prayers, because so many of the other prayers at Lag Derg are sequential. You just pray the Our Father and Hail Marys and the Glory Be. But to stand, to stand out, arms outstretched, makes you realize that you'll get tired pretty quickly. You're making an effort. You're offering up your whole body. You're not just sending to God your wish list from the comfort of your couch or bed. Pray always without becoming weary. There's two, two tangents that I want to bring together, um, so bear with me. One is a meditation on our, our Lord and his crucifixion and his being mocked as king. And the other has to do with very specific details of the the liturgy and the vesture of priests uh, and the gestures of priests over the centuries. 
start with that. You're accustomed to a wide variety of, of gestures and habits when priests offer Mass these days. The idea of there being variety and options is, is, is novel. That's only been the case in the church, the Roman Catholic Church, since about 1970. Prior to that, for centuries, for more than a millennium, the church was rather uh, strict and uncompromising in making sure that every priest offered Mass exactly the same way, so that there was no obvious difference between, say, a young priest and an old feeble priest. As for an example, when the, when the priest, with the assistance of servers, genuflects at the altar, the servers are cupping their hands under his elbows. Not necessarily to help him down or to help him out. But obviously the older, feeble priest needs help getting down and getting back up. But there wouldn't be any noticeable difference between the young priest and the old priest, because even the young priest would have to have hands cupped under his elbows as he goes down and as he goes up. There are many, many, many other examples where there are obvious accommodations for the certain circumstances of, of the priest celebrating Mass that resulted in everyone having the exact same thing uh, applied to them out of, um, out of a, one, so that the priest is less conspicuous, so that you pay attention less to how that particular priest offers Mass. That sounds like a welcome relief, doesn't it? So one example is the, the, the gesture of the priest standing at the altar. At the old mass, the priest has to stand such that his hands are within his shoulders, underneath the shoulder blades and uh, not wider than his shoulders stand. And it's quite evident that 1,500 years ago, the priest would have stood with his arms out in the shape of a cross. What we do know is that during the first 1,200 years of the church, the chasuble, the outer garment of the priest, was a comb that went from the shoulders all the way down to the floor all the way around. That was the common garment of shepherds. Priests adopted it. Eventually, emperors adopted the vesture of priests and priest's garments started becoming decorated and stiff. And as a result, that cone-shaped chasuble, which is identical to the way my purple and my white chasubles are designed, became inflexible and had to be modified. Beginning then in the 13th century, the chasuble started to be cut and trimmed and modified on the side so the priest could get his arms out and do anything with them. And as you know, by the time you get to the 16, 16th century, 17th century, the chasuble is so short that it comes almost up to the priest's shoulders or his elbows. We do know St. Charles Borromeo, the Archbishop of Milan, was so scandalized that he dictated chasubles in the Archdiocese of Milan had to be long enough that at the very least the cone-shaped chasuble would reach the wrists of the priest. So my red and my green chasubles are that St. Charles Borromeo design. My contention is 
it's quite evident that the priest showing his uh, garments, his undergarments, as it were, his liturgical undergarments, was actually scandalous to those who had uh, a refined liturgical sensibility. And it's quite obvious then that there's no chance whatsoever that bare white arms would be permitted at the altar. And as a result, the church made the compromise that you can wear that short, short chasuble, but you, but you have to keep your arms in. Nowadays, you'll see priests wearing very short chasubles, very long chasubles, arms stretched out, arms up high, arms in, in tight, and that's all permitted now. But when we remember what the liturgy is, and hopefully we, we get past the, exter- the externals and see what's happening, listen to the words, and, and join our hearts to the actual movement of the liturgy, the liturgy is Christ Jesus teaching us and worshiping God the Father. Not only was, was Jesus praying for you from the cross, Jesus continues to intercede for you at the altar. Jesus has not stopped praying for you. And he does not grow weary. When we get to the third sorrowful mystery of the Holy, Holy Rosary, and I, I would... I long for the day when I would say just the number and the type of mystery and everyone would know, bing, yeah, of course. That's when Jesus uh, came out and saw his shadow and there was another month of spring, right? No. The third sorrowful mystery of the Holy Rosary when Christ is crowned, and it, it really is, seriously though, it is a huge help to all of our young people, to your grandchildren, your kids, your siblings, to know, to know at least 15 decades of the rosary means that they have an outline of the gospel in their head. It means they have the life of Christ already uh, familiar to them. The timeline of our Lord's actions and deeds, especially his saving actions on the cross, are already totally familiar. The names are completely familiar. The sequences, they completely got it. It'll take a few years of praying the glorious mysteries, and then they'll know the difference between the ascension and the assumption. No problem. But without the 15 mysteries of the rosary, we're, we're sunk. We're, we're less than... Um, so, pray the rosary as a family. Make sure your kids know the mysteries. Third, third sorrowful mystery, our Lord is crowned with thorns, and very clearly, He is being mocked. And even those who are not only realize what's going on here, he is being mocked, but also um, uh, those who are accusing him are being mocked as well, because Pontius Pilate adds the plate, um, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, or Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Everyone's being mocked in that scene. But it's not only his kingship being ridiculed by the crown drawing blood from his head. But when you, when you think of this gesture, you don't... Uh, 
if you were to see anyone make that gesture, right, it, it, it could mean, you know, I caught a fish this big. Um, it could mean I love you this much, but that's the Hallmark card version of Christianity. But it's, <clears throat> I see it, at least on this Sunday morning, as the gesture of, uh, of a king from a balcony. This is a gesture of, of authority. Moses standing with his arms outstretched is calling God's power down on all of these people who are subject to him, the armies that are fighting for him against Amalek. It's a gesture of confidence. And Christ has his hands, his wrists nailed in mockery of his kingship. And he prays. He prays for hours and eventually succumbs. We, we need to pray. And don't, don't just pray super confidently with your, your, with your wish list in hand, all the things that you would love to have and all the, all the conveniences that you would, you would die for, no pun intended. Pray with, pray with charity for starters. Pray for other people primarily. And pray for what real charity seeks, which is the salvation of others, their eternal good. Pray with faith. Pray knowing that God already does love you and already does love the person you're praying for. And it really is God and really is omnipotent. And respects our freedom, but otherwise seeks our good. Pray with faith. Pray with hope. Hope as a theological virtue means I look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in heaven. A person of hope is not set back by um, by earthly suffering, because we're, we know this, this world is passing temp- quickly. It's temporary. My heart is set on heaven, on the fulfillment of God's promises in eternity. Pray. Pray with faith. Pray with hope. Pray with charity. And pray fervently. Pray in such a way that there's a chance that you might get tired. The other last little bit of corporeality that we should add to our prayers is fasting. Fasting is normal for Christians. The current discipline of the church requires us to fast on exactly two days of the year, which makes them look like anomalies and extraordinarily difficult. Monks and nuns fast most days of the year, where there's just simply one one modest meal, and if they're absolutely going desperate, a snack, maybe two snacks. A hundred years ago, every Christian fasted every day of Lent, except for Sundays. Fasting is the Christian way of life. When John the Baptist's followers noticed that Christ's followers were not fasting, it was they were reassured while the bridegroom is with them, there's no fasting, but when he leaves, they will fast. Do we do that? The church doesn't even demand that we keep a meaningful Eucharistic fast anymore, right? In order to receive Holy Communion, it means you would have needed to have stopped eating your last donut 20 minutes before Mass started. And if I get on a roll, you could have had a donut in your mouth as you're walking in the front door of church, 
As the church relaxed the Eucharistic fast over the course of the 20th century, it made it clear, keep the old fast, keep the original fast if you can, which means nothing from the time you wake up until you receive Holy Communion, which, again, could be 45 minutes or an hour, two hours or four or five, who knows. That's where breakfast, breakfast gets its name. As a, as a modest introduction to fasting as a Christian way of life, I encourage you to, to do that. Keep, keep at least the Eucharistic fast in its original form. Postpone your coffee until after Mass. And then maybe consider fasting on every Friday or fasting on every Wednesday and Friday. You will notice you, you, are, less, you are less bound by your desires. You are less a victim of your body's whims. And you also have something to offer up. You have a sacrifice. You have an oblation to lift up to God, not just the synapses twitching in your brain. Christ made it very clear, some things are resolved by prayer, but there are some demons that are only exercised by prayer and fasting. There are many demons afflicting us, our country and our church. We can make a difference. If we prayed as we ought, we would make a difference. The world would be different. And that doesn't mean just simply finding the right, precise words to express what we want to say, but pray with faith, hope, and charity. Pray and fast. Pray fervently. Pray without growing weary. St. Paul promised the Romans, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.